This morning, we are beginning a sermon series through the Lord's Prayer. And as uh, an introduction to that, as a summary of that, let us first of all receive the instruction from the Westminster Larger Catechism as printed in the bulletin. We will read responsively, what does the opening of the Lord's Prayer teach us? The opening of the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, teaches us that when we pray, we should draw near to God, confident of His fatherly goodness and the benefits to us from that goodness, reverently and in every way, like a child, and with heavenly feelings and a proper awareness of His sovereign power, His majesty, and His graciousness in allowing us to approach Him. The opening also teaches us to pray with and for others. And you note the Scripture citations printed there because our catechisms are simply a summary, a systematic presentation of what the Scripture teaches. The Scripture alone is the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God and the supreme authority for our faith and life. And since it is the Word of God and we need the blessing of the Holy Spirit for our spiritual enlightenment to rightly understand His Word, let us now pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit upon us. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for loving us and for speaking to us Your Word of love through Your Son, Jesus, and in Your Word preserved for us in Holy Scripture. We pray now for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Shine with the light of your truth into our minds and our hearts so that we might behold the wondrous things in your word. We ask it for Jesus' sake and the glory of your name. Amen. Let us hear the word of God, the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, beginning at verse 5. It is written, Jesus said, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts 
as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And now unto him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. Before we get into the actual text of the Lord's Prayer, I want to offer a couple of introductory comments to lay the foundation for this entire sermon series. The Lord's Prayer is an outline or a guideline for prayer, not a magical mantra. Now, I think that it is a very good thing for us to pray the Lord's Prayer in corporate worship each Lord's Day. That's a good thing to do. And I think that it can be a very good thing for you to pray the Lord's Prayer in your daily devotions, perhaps even more than once a day, but not as a magical mantra, and not, as Jesus warned, as a mindless repetition of empty phrases. Listen to what Martin Luther said about this. Now, you get a flavor for Martin Luther in this quote. What a great pity that the prayer is prattled and chattered so irreverently all over the world. How many pray the Lord's Prayer several thousand times a year? And if they were to keep doing so for a thousand years, they would not have tasted nor prayed one iota, one jot and tittle of it. Everybody tortures and abuses it. Few take comfort and joy in its proper use. End quote of Martin Luther. So the goal of this sermon series is that we learn to pray the Lord's Prayer in spirit and truth with spiritual illumination, understanding, focus, and intentionality. And one of the ways that you personally can actively contribute to your personal spiritual growth in rightly praying the Lord's Prayer is to refer to our historic catechisms, the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechisms and the Heidelberg Catechism in their very, very helpful exposition of the Lord's Prayer, very helpful. That's the reason that we read from the larger catechism just a moment ago. Now, every member of this congregation ought to have these catechisms at home. But if you don't, all you need to do, and this includes visitors who are interested in learning more about us, all you need to do today 
is take one of those prayer cards from the pew rack, it's okay, and write, I need catechisms. And write your name, very legibly, email address, phone number, place it in the offering plate, and we'll get you the catechisms. Okay? Now, as an outline, a summary guideline for prayer, the Lord's Prayer defines our needs and directs our desires. You might want to make a note of that. The Lord's Prayer defines our real needs and directs our desires so that we will pray rightly for the things that God has promised to us in His Word. The Lord's Prayer defines our real needs and directs our desires so that we pray rightly in accordance with God's Word. And these right needs and right desires are summarized and outlined for us. First of all, in the opening address, our Father who art in heaven, Our greatest need is to know the Father of glory as our dear Father. And our greatest desire ought to be to live in an intimate personal relationship of love with Him. That's what I mean when I say defines our needs, directs our desires. And then we have the six petitions of the Lord's Prayer. Now make a note that the six petitions of the Lord's Prayer are given to us in two groups of three. The six petitions of the Lord's Prayer are given to us in two groups of three. Two times three is six. And the first three are primarily concerned with God, His name, His kingdom, and His will. So would you please note that in the Lord's Prayer, the first priority has to do with the things of God, with God Himself. The Lord's Prayer teaches us, first of all, to focus our our attention and our priority concern Upon God, His name, His kingdom, His will. It is a wonderful thing to know that our Father in heaven is concerned, yes, about the things that concern us. But the Lord's Prayer teaches us that we, first of all, are to be concerned about the things that are concerned with God Himself. Then the second group of three petitions has to do with our specific needs, our daily, material, earthly needs, 
our spiritual need of reconciliation with God and reconciliation with others, a spiritually clean relationship with our Father in heaven and a spiritually clean relationship with others, and our need for protection and deliverance from spiritual forces of sin and evil, which are far too great for us to overcome on our own. Now we're going to move into the text of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven and these six petitions cover every need of our lives. Another, another, another preliminary comment here. Um, as a summary guideline, in his, in his beautiful commentary on the Lord's Prayer, John Calvin wrote, In this summary, God has set forth what is worthy of him, acceptable to him, necessary for us, in effect, what he would willingly grant. No one should ask for or demand anything at all except what is included by way of summary in this prayer. So as we make our way through the address and the six petitions, we will see how they cover every area of our lives of our lives and every need of our lives. And I, I hope that you will gain, as we go through this, a practical understanding of how the Lord's Prayer defines our needs, directs our desires, so that we pray rightly in accordance with God's Word. And now we turn to the, the opening address or the invocation, Our Father who art in heaven. What is the first thing that we learn? Did you notice? The first thing we learn from the very first word is that when we truly pray as Christians, even when we pray alone in secret as Jesus taught us to do, even when we pray alone in secret as we ought, we pray as members of a family. The first word is the first person plural pronoun, our. Even when we pray alone in secret, we do not pray as an isolated individual disconnected from everyone else, but rather as someone who has been born again and adopted into God's household, God's family with a relationship not only with God our Father, but also with all our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are welcomed into the Father's presence through faith in His Son. Listen, here we go. This is, we're, we're drilling right down on a main point here. We are welcomed into the Father's presence through faith in his son who became our human brother of flesh and blood so that we, by the new birth granted by the Holy Spirit, we might become the children of God, members of his household together with all who believe in Christ. And the first person plural pronoun reminds us that we are members of God's Family. Now, of course, it is acceptable. Of, 
often appropriate to pray using the first person singular pronouns, I and me, in our prayers. Of, of course that's appropriate, and we, we read many prayers in the Bible which employ the singular first person. But the point is that we ought always to remember that we do not have an exclusively individualistic relationship with God. We are members of God's family, the household of God, the new covenant people in Christ, the church, the body of Christ, and therefore our prayers are to be offered in a spirit or attitude mindful of our family relationships in the church of Jesus Christ, such that not only we ourselves, but also all our brothers and sisters in Christ might in some way benefit from our personal prayers. In other words, when you really think about it, the Lord's Prayer all the way through is a prayer for the whole worldwide church of Jesus Christ. Can you, can you see that? Our Father. And then as we, we make these requests and we, we, we think of these petitions for us and for ourselves, well, it, it's immediately expanded because it's the, it's the first person plural all the way through. We're praying a big prayer for the whole worldwide church of Jesus Christ. And we do so as an individual member of that household. And this is one aspect of the communion of saints. You see? Being with, being connected to, being for one another in prayer, even when we are alone in secret. And on this opening point, John Calvin writes, how great a feeling of brotherly love ought to be among us, since by the same mercy and free grace, we are equally children of such a father. We ought to be drawn with a special affection to those of the household of faith. All prayers ought to be such as to look to that community which our Lord has established in his kingdom and his household. Our. And now the word Father. How is it that we may call God, the infinite, eternal, uncreated creator, the holy, holy, Holy One, our Father. In the Old Testament, God is very rarely referred to as Father. Only in a very few cases is He addressed as Father, and in those cases, He is addressed as the father of his old covenant people, Israel, but not by an individual who is addressing him as 
father. And, and more often in the Old Testament, um, you, you have the word father as a simile, that is, a figure of speech. That is, God is referred to being like a good and compassionate father. But that's different from God being revealed, known, called upon as father. And there's no record in first century Judaism of Jewish prayers addressing God as father. This was not common language in first century Judaism. But as soon as you open the gospel of Matthew, in the teaching of Jesus, you have multiple references to God as father, not simply like a father, no, but God identified by title, by name, as the father of those who follow Jesus. And so Jesus teaches his disciples to pray to their father in heaven. Now, what's going on here? I will tell you something very important, something that's right at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the eternal Son of the Father, in human flesh and blood, our brother, teaches us that in our brotherhood or sisterhood with him, with Jesus as our brother, through that bond of faith in him, his father is our father. Now, this is big, and this is deep. If you are truly born again by the Holy Spirit and united to Jesus Christ in faith and love, if you know that you have Him as your brother, you may know that you have His Father as your father. And have you ever meditated upon the mind-blowing reality that through the love poured out upon you in Jesus, buckle up, your father in heaven loves you with the same love and the same degree of love with which he has eternally loved his only begotten eternal son. May I say that again? Have you ever meditated on the reality, the mind-blowing reality, I hope it blows your mind, that through the love poured out upon you in Jesus, your Father in heaven loves you with the same love and the same degree of love with which He has eternally loved 
His only begotten eternal Son. That's the reason that the gospel declares you are loved with an everlasting love. The Father loves His own adopted children, the adopted brothers and sisters of Jesus, with that same love. And so 1 John 3.1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. This is a distinct and unique blessing that comes through true faith in Christ. Look, we are not the children of God simply because we are humans. No. The children of God are those who have been born again by the Holy Spirit and are united to Jesus Christ in faith and are therefore adopted in Christ as children of his Father. Is, is that who you are? Is that the most important thing about you? Is that your core identity? Is that your security in life and in death? Can you say, in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence, is my God and my Father. Because of Christ, his Son. And so Romans 8.15 tells us that those who have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters cry out, Abba, Father, Dear, dearly beloved Father, that is the prayer cry of the true Christian. You know you can run to Him because He has run to you in Jesus Christ. Now, if the name Father speaks to us of God's nearness and dearness to us, His eminence, closeness, then the words in heaven speak to us of his transcendence, his glory, his majesty, his holiness, his greatness, his sovereignty. He rules over all. And therefore, when we draw near to our Father in heaven, Assured of his love toward us in Christ and trusting in his goodness, we must always remember who he is, our Father who is in heaven, the immortal, invisible, thrice holy one who dwells in unapproachable light before whom the angelic seraphim cover their faces. And so Hebrews twelve twenty eight exhorts us, let us offer acceptable worship, which includes all our prayers, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, I know it, it sounds a little bit paradoxical, but I think we have to hold these two realities in beautiful harmony. We are children in the intimate presence of our loving Father. And our loving Father is the Holy One, a consuming fire, whom we rightly worship with reverence and awe. 
I think it works like this. If we fall down before the majestic holiness in fear and trembling, He says to us, fear not. But if we saunter into the presence of the Holy One with a lackadaisical, cavalier, careless, presumptuous attitude, we are in danger of being consumed by the fire of His wrath. I love the way John Calvin puts this. For framing prayer duly and properly, let this be the first rule that we be disposed in mind and heart as fits those who enter into conversation with God. (laughs) That's a great word of instruction. He's saying, think about it. Think about who it is to whom you are speaking when you pray. Think about who it is. Calvin continues, nothing is more contrary to reverence for God than the levity that marks an excess of frivolity utterly devoid of awe. But just as if the discourse were between us and an ordinary man, just as if the conversation were between us and an ordinary man, amidst our prayers we neglect him and flit about hither and thither, says Calvin. Well, you know, in, in other situations, in other contexts, I've heard people pray like that. They, 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 they just get going, jabbering. It's a chatterbox. It just keeps going and going and going as fast as they can talk, about as fast as they can text. And it's about this and it's about that and it's about this and it's about that. And then they come to a screeching halt in Jesus' name. And I'm thinking, Really? Was that a prayer? Now, I'm not the judge of that. But if you will allow me, once again, to quote Calvin on prayer, this this is a beautiful phrase. Take it in. He counsels us to, quote, to descend into our heart with our whole thought and enter deeply within. May I repeat that? To descend into our heart with our whole thought and enter deeply within. Don't pray off the top of your head to your Father in heaven. Pray from the depth of your heart. Well, this emphasis on eminence and transcendence, intimacy and reverence, now leads us into the first petition, which I will need to address briefly and maybe revisit next Sunday, if the Lord wills. The first petition, hallowed be thy name. That's the first petition. The priority petition. The first thing that our Lord Jesus taught us to pray. As 
as a, as a guideline summary for our prayer. Hallowed be thy name. This is to be our first desire. This is to be our first desire. That God's name be regarded as holy. And exalted above all by all. Now God's name represents God himself. God's name represents his eternal being, who he is. And his word, his works, his glory. So to hallow his name is to honor him as the one and only, and thereby to acknowledge him and to regard him as he ought to be regarded, to give to God the glory due his name for who he is. This is a big prayer. It's a prayer of spiritual warfare. That's going to be a theme running through here, through, through this series. You know, this petition, this is the petition which empowers and motivates the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations so that all the nations bow before Him and give Him the honor that He is due. This is a petition which upholds the vision, the desire of the whole world, acknowledging God to be God and worshiping Him as God. And so it's a prayer of spiritual warfare that all impiety and irreverence and sacrilege and false religion and the profaning of God's name and the, the, the ignoring of His word and His will may be wiped out so that God's name may be exalted above all by all. It's a huge petition. It defines our needs and directs our desires. A zeal for the honor of God throughout the whole world. And it gets very personal and very practical. The Heidelberg Catechism puts it this way. Hallowed be thy name means help us to direct all our living what we think, say, and do so that your name will never be blasphemed because of us, but always be honored and praised. See why I want you to get the catechism? Help us to direct all our living, what we think, what we say, what we do, so that your name will never be blasphemed because of us, but always be honored and praised. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, if you have been baptized, you have been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You bear that name upon you. Bear it in such a way 
that your life will hallow and honor that name. The Lord's Prayer teaches us to pray, hallowed be thy name, to direct our desire to the honor of God and to define our need to hallow his name in our own personal lives. And this we should earnestly do because he is our Father in heaven through his Son, our brother, Jesus Christ, whom he gave to us and gave for us that we might become the children of God. To God be the glory. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice in the everlasting love which you have poured out upon us through your Son, Jesus Christ, by whom you call us to draw near. And we pray, Abba, Father, but by the grace of your Spirit, we would enter into this life of communion with you more and more deeply. To the honor and the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. And in response to the glorious gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith as we read responsively from the Heidelberg Catechism. Dear Christian, what is your only comfort in life and in death? My only comfort is that I belong body and soul in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. At the cost of His own precious blood, He has fully paid for all my sins and has set me free from the dominion of the devil. He also watches over me so well that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. Indeed, all things must work together to fit His purpose for my salvation. Therefore,